around the church here, and it had a clock on it. It says, sometimes God makes us wait. Sometimes God makes us wait. And perhaps one of the most frustrating aspects of serving the Lord and following the Lord is that God sometimes makes us wait. And we live in a culture that just conditions us not to have to wait on anything, but God doesn't seem to be interested in conforming himself to our culture, rather us conforming ourselves to his. And no doubt, a lot of you I'm talking to this morning, you were waiting on the Lord for something. Let me give you some basic truths about waiting on God. Number one, living in the will of God will mean that we will often have to wait. If you are living in God's will and following God's will, you are often going to have to wait on whatever God is doing and whatever the Lord has in store for you. Second truth, God is at work in the waiting seasons. When God takes you through a season of waiting, it is not because God's gone to sleep on you, given up on you, or checked out on you. God is at work. He is at work all around us. He is accomplishing His will, but He is doing it in His way, on His timetable, and we have to wait on the Lord, but know as you're waiting on God that God is at work in your life. Third truth, God never wastes a minute. God never wastes a minute. I can't stress that enough. As you and I wait on God in our lives, and we are tempted to wonder, is God doing anything? Be assured of this. That if you were living for the Lord and walking with the Lord, God will never waste one minute of your life. Now, sometimes we are tempted to think, God is wasting a whole lot of minutes of my life. In fact, He's wasted a bunch of days, and why don't you get on with it, God? But God will never waste a minute of your life. We just got to trust Him and discern Him for what He's doing. And such is the case with Joseph. We have been following for the last number of weeks the life of Joseph from the book of Genesis. And if you have your Bibles, if you'll turn with me to the book of Genesis chapter 40. And if you're following as many do on their phones, got your Bible on the phone, either open your Bible or turn your Bible on uh, to the book of Genesis. And we're going to be in chapter 40 this morning. Now, Joseph, 11 years prior to the story that we're going to look at today, had been sold into slavery. And so Joseph had been sold into slavery in Israel, and he had traveled to, or been taken, I should say, to Egypt. And he's been in Egypt now for 11 years. And essentially, he's been waiting on God for 11 years. Now, if you can imagine that. We struggle with waiting on God for a few minutes, a few hours, a few days. He has been waiting on God to fulfill the dream that God had given him for 11 long years. He is now 28 years of age. And as we get into the story, let me give you some background on some of the characters you're going to meet. You will meet Pharaoh, who is the king of Egypt, his cupbearer, and his chief baker. Now, the cupbearer and the baker were two of the highest positions in the Egyptian hierarchy. They were close to Pharaoh. They saw Pharaoh every day. And they were very important. They were sort of the ruffle equivalent of what we would call the secret service today to the president. And they were in charge of the purity and the quality of Pharaoh's food and anything that he drank. Now, Joseph is going to end up in jail with these two guys. And they get in jail because... They are convicted of a crime against Pharaoh. 
In other words, by today's standard, these guys would have been felons. And as you will see in the story, not only is Joseph going to be in jail with these two guys, he is going to have to take care of them. He is assigned to basically work under them. So Joseph's situation seems to go from bad to worse. First, he is stripped of his robe, sold into slavery in Egypt, goes to Egypt, There he is sold into Potiphar's house. As we saw last week in Potiphar's house, and Potiphar was the chief assistant to Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, he is falsely accused of trying to rape Potiphar's wife, and therefore he is thrown into prison. And now he is told that in jail you've got two convicted felons that that are over you that you have got to take care of and basically do whatever they tell you to do. Now in the story we're going to look at today... These guys, the cupbearer and the baker, have some dreams. And the dreams in those days by the ancient Egyptians were very interesting. They believed that dreams got you in contact with another world. So they put a lot of stock in dreams. They have, if you have a pair of dreams on a similar subject, the Egyptians believed that that was indicative that there was going to be a certain fulfillment of what you were dreaming. That was sort of the God's way of telling you, you can mark it down, this dream is going to be fulfilled. And then you'll see the expression several times in chapter 40, speaking of their heads being lifted up. And for one's head to be lifted up meant that they were shown dignity, honor, and independence. So when it speaks of a head being lifted up in the ancient world, when Pharaoh lifted your head or whoever, it meant that you were being shown dignity, and honor. Let's join the story in Genesis chapter 40. Sometime after this, the cupbearer of the king of Egypt and his baker committed an offense against their lord, the king of Egypt. It would have been Pharaoh. And Pharaoh was angry with his two officers, the chief cupbearer and the chief baker. And he put them in custody in the house of the captain of the guard in the prison where Joseph was confined. Now I want you to see where the hand of God is in this. They are placed in the prison where Joseph was confined. God strategically placed them right there with Joseph. The captain of the guard appointed Joseph to be with them, and he attended them. Again, a strategic placement by God. They continued for some time in custody. Folks, the Lord can work anywhere, even in a jail cell, and God was present in the jail cell orchestrating the whole situation for how he was going to use him. Never rule God out of any place and point and circumstances in your life where he cannot work. And one night they both dreamed the cupbearer and the baker of the king of Egypt, who were confined in the prison, each his own dream, and each dream with its own interpretation. When Joseph came to them in the morning, he saw that they were troubled. So he asked Pharaoh's officers who were with him in custody in his master's house, Why are your faces downcast today? They said to him, We have had dreams, and there is no one to interpret them. And Joseph said to them, Do not interpretations belong to God. Please tell them to me. So the chief cupbearer told his dream to Joseph, and Joseph said to him, In my dream there was a vine before me, and on the vine there were three branches. As soon as it budded, its blossoms shot forth, and the clusters ripened into grapes. Pharaoh's cup was in my hand. I took the grapes, pressed them into Pharaoh's cup, and placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand. And then Joseph said to them, This is its interpretation. The three branches 
or three days. In three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head and restore you to your office. And you shall place Pharaoh's cup in his hand as formerly when you were his cupbearer. Only remember me when it is well with you. And please do me the kindness to mention me to Pharaoh. And so get me out of this house. Now notice his request. Only remember me when it is well with you. And please do me the kindness to mention me to Pharaoh. And so get me out of this house. For I was indeed stolen out of the land of the Hebrews. And here also I have done nothing that they should put me into this pit. When the chief baker saw that the interpretation was favorable, he said to Joseph, I also had a dream, and there were three cake baskets on my head. And in the uttermost basket there were all sorts of baked bread for Pharaoh, but the birds were eating it out of the basket on my head. Joseph answered and said, This is its interpretation. The three baskets are three days. In three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head from you. Not exactly the lifting up that he was anticipating. And hang you on a tree. And the birds will eat the flesh from you. And on the third day, which was Pharaoh's birthday, he made a feast for all his servants. And lifted up the head of the chief cupbearer and the head of the chief baker among his servants. He restored the chief cupbearer to his position. And he placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand. But he hanged the chief baker as Joseph had interpreted to them. Yet the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph, but forgot him. My sermon outline is containing as an outline, excuse me, as an insert in your bulletin. And if you want to follow along, I encourage you to do that. Verse 8, they have these dreams. And they come to Joseph and they say, we have dreamed. And, they, and we're just perplexed because there's nobody in this prison that can interpret these dreams for us. And Joseph says the interpretation belongs to God. And I can give you that interpretation because it belongs to the Lord. What Joseph was saying to them and what Joseph was saying to himself was that God is every bit as much present in this jail as he is anywhere else and that the Lord is as present and powerful in in Egypt as he is back in the land of the Hebrews where I came from. And that is significant because the ancients so often believed that their gods were only strong where they were worshipped. And Joseph is saying God can give you the interpretation and God can give you the interpretation. And what he's actually saying is that there is a word from God and the interpretation of this dream is a word from God. And God can give his word and God will give his word in Egypt in a prison. And folks, the importance and significance of that for us is that when God wants to get a word to you, nothing can stop him from getting his word to you. Nothing can hold him back. And Joseph is saying the power of the idols of Egypt cannot overcome the power of God. Joseph got up every morning and listened to the chants as they would worship the gods of Egypt. But he stands there and he says, those gods are weak, 
they can't give you an interpretation, but Almighty God is in this jail, and Almighty God's going to bring a word, and nothing can stop God from doing what He's doing. And a lot of times in life, when we feel like we're in Egypt, where we are surrounded by the powers of darkness, and we are being oppressed by the powers of darkness, we need a word from God, and God can give us a word, and God will give us a word in the midst of the powers of darkness. And the powers of darkness, whatever is coming in on you and oppressing you, and whatever Satan is using against you cannot stop the power of the Word of God. This Word is more powerful than any of the powers of darkness. And so many times today in the church, we look around at what's going on around us in the world, and we want to give up and give out and give in because the powers of temptation and the powers of oppression and the powers of rejecting the ways of God in our nation are becoming so strong. But those powers will never exceed the power of the Word of God. Just look and anticipate and ask for a word from the Lord. And that is what Joseph did in this case. Now, waiting for God may seem like we are forgotten. Notice that Joseph says in verse 14, Only remember me when it is well with you, and please do me the kindness to mention me to Pharaoh and get me out of this place. But notice verse 23. Yet the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph but forgot him. You live long enough, you're going to discover that some people are going to forget you. We used to say when we were kids, forget you, forgot you, and the boogeyman shot you. I don't know if they still say that or not. <laughs> My wife's over there just shaking her head. Well, folks, there are going to be a lot of people in your life that are going to forget you and forgot you. I don't know whether the boogeyman is going to shoot you or not, but you're going to be forgetting and forgotten. Even people who do, you do good things for and you pour your life and your heart into and you've got hopes and dreams for, they're going to forget you. And they're not going to think a thing about you. And you're going to get beat up by that. You're going to get discouraged. All of us do when we feel like we've been forgotten. And Joseph looks at that cupbearer, and he says, God's going to elevate you, and please, I've been stuck in this jail cell, and it's like a pit, and I want to get out of here. Would you please, when you go before Pharaoh, please mention my name to him? And the cupbearer got elevated, and things started going his way, and he forgot that Joseph even existed. Well, let me say this to you, and we'll see this next week in more detail in the first 30 41st chapter. People will forget you, but God will never forget you. People will look over you, but the Lord will never look over you. And all of us are going to have time, what I call it pit time, that we pull time in the pit. And whatever your pit is, you're going to think, God has. Is God remembering me? And people have forgotten me. And when you go out and you serve the Lord, it's easy sometimes to think, hey, people have forgotten what I've done for the Lord. Has God forgotten me? But God will never overlook you. God never forgets you. And the cupbearer may have forgotten Joseph, but God had never forgotten Joseph. Disappointments in life are essential to our spiritual growth. Those seasons of disappointment and feeling like we've been forgotten is when we have to place our hope in the Lord. It's then that God's working at in us and He's saying, I want you to understand that you are my servant. I am not your servant. You are my servant. And Jesus is 
our Lord. And we begin to live in the Lordship of Jesus Christ. It is then that we are walking with the Lord in companionship. We are walking in front of Him in openness and integrity. And we are walking with Him. The greatest temptation that Joseph faced in Egypt and in that jail was not the temptations that Potiphar's wife threw in front of him. It was the temptation of discouragement and confusion. And that's the greatest temptation that we will face. I just want to give up. And I feel like giving up because I don't understand where God is. And I don't understand where God, what God is doing in my life at this time. But hang in there with Him. Walk with Him. Because that's where He's growing you. That's how He's developing you. I've shared with you the story about years ago when I was a high school student. My coach decided I needed to build some muscle tissue. I know looking at me you'd never guess that. But anyway, they decided that I needed to do that. And so they sent me into this weight room. And he kept increasing the weights and increasing the weights. What was he doing? He was saying, if I'm going to build muscle tissue, i got to place more resistance in you. And the more resistance you have to face, the better and the stronger is going to be the growth of your muscles. And our spiritual muscles work the same way. God places the resistance in our lives. And the more we have to press up against the resistance, the more we have to trust Him through it. And the closer we have to walk with Jesus, the more He is developing us spiritually. Now that waiting develops spiritual power in our lives. You'll notice in your notes, it got two blanks there. Seems like in Joseph's life for two long years, nothing happens. But with God, something good and eternal is always happening. With God, something good and eternal is always happening. But where we struggle is living between the obedience and the blessing. Where we say yes to Jesus and then the blessing comes because we are being obedient to Him. Think about some of the great servants of the Lord. Abraham waited till he was a senior adult to have a son. Moses had to go into the desert and wait for 40 years. David was anointed to be the king of Israel. But from the time that Samuel anointed him to the time that he assumed the kingship, there were years and years and years in there of him waiting. Part of which he was running for his life from Saul. Not exactly a way that you think you're going to be ushered in to be the next king. V. Raymond Edmund writes these words, Delay never forwards God's purpose. It only polishes his instrument. Delay never forwards God's purpose. It only polishes his instrument. And if you were waiting on God, and listen, all of us are going to have to spend some chunks of our lives waiting on God. But while we are waiting on God, he is polishing you and he is getting ready to use you for the next step. But he and he alone has the right to choose when and where the next step is going to be. Our job is to cooperate with him. Now, I found this in my spiritual journey. I don't know about you all if you run into this or not. When I was a young guy and I was just getting started, it looked like God answered my prayers just like that. My life was falling into place just the way that I had thought it would. I had prayed and the Lord had showed me. And I just thought everything just clicked. And then about 10 or so years into serving the Lord, it looked like God decided to hit the pause button. And I have found that the older I get, the longer the pauses get. I don't understand that. It looks like it takes longer for the prayers to be answered. I find that I struggle more with trying to understand God and what He's doing. 
And that is outlined so often in Scripture. Now, as the body of Christ, we're also waiting as the church. The end times in Scripture began when Jesus began His earthly ministry, and then when He ascended to the Father between then and now is what the Bible calls the end times. We as the church are living in between. In between the ministry of Jesus and when Jesus comes again and resolves this whole thing to His glory. And in between when Jesus finished His work on this earth and when He's coming again is where we tend to struggle. It is why so often the work of God seems so unresolved. And folks will ask, why did God do this? And why did God allow this? And why am I suffering in this way? And why did I have this loss? It's because we are living in between. Let me illustrate it this way. When the Allies landed on the beaches of Normandy on D-Day, the victory of Europe and the liberation of Europe began. But there were a lot of battles that had to be fought before there was victory in Europe day. And you see on the cross, Jesus won the war, but the battle is still going on and we are still in between waiting for when He comes again and He wraps this whole thing up. And that is according to the sovereign work of God. But He is always working in our lives when He makes us wait in terms of eternity and His universal plan. Now, I want you to follow what I'm saying about this. Joseph's sitting there in the jail cell, waiting day after day, week after week, month after month. And then his waiting in Egypt is year after year, and he's wondering, what is God doing? But God was doing a work in Joseph's life, but Joseph's life wasn't just about Joseph's life. It was about the nation of Israel and how God was going to use him to birth a nation. It was about the Messiah that would come out of that nation. So God was doing an eternal work, and God was doing a universal work. He wasn't just doing a work in the jail cell with Joseph. And the reason I want to emphasize it is this. Folks, we have to understand that when God is at work in our lives, it's not just about us. We are called by God and caught up by God in something that is eternal in its duration and universal in what God is doing. Our church is not just about our church and just about Rocky Mount. God has called us to be part of an eternal work that He is doing, leading people to Christ who will be part of the kingdom of God for eternity because there's going to come a day when church denominational names and titles are all going away. When we get to heaven, there ain't going to be different churches and different denominations. Everybody's going to be together up there. That's what God is working and getting us ready for, an eternal work, but He is also doing a universal work. We are part of his worldwide plan of what he's doing. When I was a boy, I've told you we used to go down to Gretna and I had a family farm that was out there from Gretna and there was a creek that runs right through the middle of that farm and I used to love on hot August days like we've been having to get out there and play in that creek. Any of y'all ever try to catch crawdads? That was one of the things that we used to love. My cousins and I used to love to do is try to <clears throat> grab a hold of a crawdad. And they talked about eating them. I can't say I ever did that, but Get in there with them crawdads and try to catch them and so forth in that creek. Now, that creek, we'd play in that creek and enjoy that creek, and we were creek-focused. But that creek connected to a river. I don't know if it was the Dan River or which river, but it eventually connected to a river. The river eventually 
connected to the Chesapeake Bay. And the Chesapeake Bay connected to the Atlantic Ocean. Now, somewhere during the summer, our family in those days would go to the Outer Banks, to Nags Head. And I can remember walking up to the ocean and standing there. And I love for those waves to come in. But I discovered something as I'd stand there and those waves would come in. There was a whole lot more power in the ocean than there was in that creek in Gretna. And then I became ocean-focused. If we're not careful sometimes, we get so focused on our creek that we forget that God's got an ocean. That we think that everything is about my life and what God's doing in my life and what's going on with me and how good I feel. And God is trying to say, you're part of a creek that connects to a river, that connects to a bay, that connects to the ocean of what I'm doing. And if you just focus on your creek, you're going to miss the river, you're going to miss the bay, and you're going to miss the ocean of my activity. So always understand that you're not just playing in a creek. It's moving to the ocean. And the ocean is the eternal, worldwide work that God is about. Now, if you ever have opportunity to get to the eastern shore, when you leave Virginia Beach and head to the eastern shore, you're going to go across the Chesapeake Bay Bridge Tunnel. It is a fascinating trip to take. Let me tell you why. You get about halfway across there, if you look to the left, you will see the Chesapeake Bay. If you look to the right, you will see the Atlantic Ocean. And there's a place out there where the bay meets the ocean. And you know where and you see where the bay is meeting the ocean because there's waves all over the place as those two bodies of water converge with each other. Folks, the cross and the resurrection is where history and the work of God converge. Everything that God has done from Genesis to Malachi, and that He ever will do from Matthew to Revelation, is meeting on the cross and in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The center of everything that we say we do and God is calling us to is grounded in the cross and in the resurrection. What God was doing with Joseph was moving him and moving the people of Israel eventually to the cross and the resurrection. Everything that God has been doing since then has been about the cross and the resurrection. We are on the place that we look back at the cross and back at the resurrection. But that place where it all merged is where the waves of the love of God and the glory of God and the power of God and the awesomeness. Now, I want you to see one other thing. When you stand there on that Chesapeake Bay Bridge Tunnel and you look over this side and you see the Chesapeake Bay, you see a big body of water. But when you look over on the other side and you see the Atlantic Ocean, you see a body of water that is thousands of times bigger than the bay. Now, excuse me, but I get real excited when I preach this because what God has done is awesome. But folks, everything on the other side of the cross and the resurrection is like an ocean compared to what God has already done. What He's got in store for us and in store for His church is thousands of times greater and larger than what He has already done. 
And so we get to live, where do we live? We live on the other side of the cross and the resurrection in anticipation of what the Lord is going to do. Read this book, study this book, but understand that this book shows us in the Old Testament what he started doing. In the Gospels, it shows us what he started doing. And I love the book of Acts following the resurrection when it says these words. Let me give you an account of all that Jesus began to do. And to teach. We get to wake up every morning in the ocean of what he's doing, living with an anticipation of what he's doing. The church today, instead of us walking around with our heads beat down and beat up and discouraged, we need to get up as the church and say, We are living in the ocean of what he's doing this side of the cross and resurrection. And we are anticipating the work of God and the power of the Holy Spirit and him working through us. Now, God is at work while we're waiting on that side. Turn your Bibles to James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4. The James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Verse 2, he says, count it all joy. The highest level of joy is what he's referencing there. Count it all joy. Know the full and the highest level of joy that God's got for you when you go through various trials. You say, how in the world can I know joy when I'm going through trials? I want you to write this down. I think I got it in your notes. God is more concerned with your holiness than with our happiness. God's chief concern for us is making us holy. That is, making us like Jesus, not about making us happy. You get holy, you'll get happy. But you don't have the holiness of God. We will not have the happiness of the Lord. Count it all joy when you fall into various trials. It means that you are surrounded by the trials. And it's various trials. It's like they're correlated, many colored, different types of trials. He says you're going to be tested, standing the test. And then he uses the word steadfastness. It's staying power. He said, count it all joy when you go through all these different type of trials because what is God doing? He's putting you through a test to become like gold so that you will have staying power. And then notice the final thing he says, so that you will be perfect and complete. And the idea of perfect and complete is not that we become perfect this side of heaven. It is the idea that we are becoming Christ-like in every part of our lives. Let me tell you what God does and the reason he brings the trials. And we say, man, I'm getting along in the Christian life. Things are going fine. And I feel like I'm making progress. And God says, you are. But there's a part of your life over here that's not yielded to me. And you're not growing in Christ yet. There's a place of hurt and suffering and pain over here that is unresolved. That is holding you back. There's a pocket of sin over here that you have not surrendered to me. There's an area where fear is gripping your life. And you haven't let go of that fear. And that fear is holding you back from becoming what I want you to become. And so what God does is he steps in and he starts pointing all those things out. And he says, we're going to work. And the way we're going to work in that part of your life is I'm going to bring a trial to your life that is going to speak right into the place where you are struggling right now. I'm going to bring a trial into your life that's going to bring something to the surface of your life that you've been in denial of, you've been running from, you will not deal with. And now we're going to force you to deal with it by the trial that I am bringing into your life. And we scream and we holler and we say, God, why are you doing this? And Jesus, do you love me? 
And he says, I do love you. Because I'm trying to heal you in this area. I'm trying to bring perfection in that area. I'm trying to change you in that area. I'm trying to give you a victory that you have been running from and avoiding. And you can't seem to experience. And the trial is coming to bring it to the surface. So I can give you a victory in that area. So I can grow you in that area. So I can make you perfect and complete and mature you in every area of your life. Hudson Taylor founded the China Inland Mission. But after six years of intense service in China, he had to go back to England as an invalid because of illness. He settled with his small family in the poor eastern section of London. And there, for five long years, his friends forgot him, his interests seemed to fade, and he just lived on the cold blackened streets of the eastern section of London. And he later wrote of those years, yet without those hidden years, with all their growth and testing, how could the vision and enthusiasm of youth have been matured for the leadership that was to be? Let me read that again. Yet without those hidden years with all their growth and testing, how could the vision and enthusiasm of youth have been matured for the leadership that was to be? When that time of waiting concluded, he returned to China. And he founded the China Inland Mission, which eventually grew to have over a thousand missionaries that joined him in China and the influence of the gospel on the nation of China to this day is traced back to Hudson Taylor. But it happened in the eastern section of London as he waited on God to grow him, to mature him, to make him complete, to become the leader that God had for him. If God is saying to you, wait, he's at work in you. Trust Him. Move with Him during this time of waiting. Because He's got something great that He wants to do in you and through you. Let's pray.